You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to my new listeners and hello again to my regulars. So pleased you're back to join me on Smart Sex, Smart Love. This week I'm talking about sex and faith with my guest, licensed clinical social worker and ASEX certified sex therapist and author, Rachel Keller. Rachel's book is Advancing Sexual Health for the Christian Client, Data and Dogma, which she co-authored with Beverly Dale. Rachel grew up in the conservative Christian church, experiencing both the positives and negatives of that culture, and is now passionate about helping others find sexual freedom, wholeness, and empowerment. So we're asking today, what's the difference between faith versus belief, and what does a sex-positive Christianity look like? Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Joe. Uh, it's great to be on your podcast. I, I've been listening to to some of your other episodes, and I, I love the work that you're doing Thank you. Thank you so much. And I love the work you're doing. And so important that you're here. When I was um, in the 90s, I started working with primarily the LGBTQ population. And I was shocked at how much and still this is the case, but even outside of the LGBTQ population, how shocked people came to me as a replacement for their their religious leaders, you know, their, their rabbis, their ministers, their clergy, because they had uh, sexual issues, identity issues, and they couldn't go to their religion. They couldn't go to their, their mentors. And I would say to them, I'm not religious. I'm not, I can't help you with this, but they would want to work with me to work it through. So it's so important the work you're doing to add sexual health to religious conversations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. And that, that's really what we were trying to do. My, my co-author, uh, we, she goes by Rev Bev, uh, Beverly Dale and myself. We really wanted to marry the two, healthy sexuality and Christianity, to kind of show people that it is possible to have a sex-positive Christianity and find wholeness and find sexual health, even in in the midst of of that belief system. Can I ask you, what interested you in this topic on a personal and or a professional level? Sure. Um so I, I came of age in an evangelical church environment in the height of the purity movement that started in the nineties. The mm-hmm. um, and actually in your interview with her, Tina Sellers did an excellent job talking about the impact on that, of that movement mm-hmm. on the teenagers once they became adults, which really revolves around a lot of internalized shame about the body and sexuality. Um, so, so that was kind of my story and, you know, coming out of that. Mm-hmm. And my co-author, Beverly Dale, is a doctor of divinity and a reverend in a progressive Christian church. She came of age at a different time, but also has a personal story that brought her to the issue um, about some of the, the trauma she experienced, uh, you know, growing up. Mm-hmm. And professionally, what, 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 what did you decide to make it part of your profession? As you as you alluded to, it's it's really hard to separate the impact of Christianity on the sexuality of people in our culture. When I began working as a sex therapist, I realized that the impacts of Christian history about sex are rampant in our culture, which includes things such as a separation of 
of mind and body or body and spirit, mm-hmm. uh, sexual scarcity, which I can explain a little bit later, uh, sexual boxing in kind of limited options for sexual expression and identity and sexual ignorance. And, you know, uh, Rev Bev and I spoke at the ASECT sexuality conference four years ago on this topic for the first time. And we realize that sexual health professionals are by and large not comfortable talking about sexuality with Christian clients. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, the group of sex therapists and educators that were in the room for our talk turns out had a lot of their own unresolved experiences about shame and sex negativity from the church or just from from their upbringing. Mm -hmm. So we we really realized that there's a need for more information around this topic and and people, you know, even even professionals feeling more comfortable talking about that. Absolutely. It's so important. And I have, to be honest, I'm increasingly angry that uh, religion is so uninformed. And I like what you said, sexually naive. And then they go ahead and teach about sex as if they know what they're talking about when they don't. And they give all this bad and misinformation. And then, and to people, that's why I think there's such a need for sex therapy because people are misinformed and they believe their minister. They believe their rabbi, whomever the clergy is, and they don't know what they're talking about. Just, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know what I'm saying. You wrote the book. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's evidenced very clearly in the debacle of abstinence-only education. And, you know, T- Tina Sellers, I'll reference her podcast again, uh, the interview you did with her, because she talks about, um, she does a good job talking about the impact of that. But there's so much misinformation in this sex education that's provided um, for youth and a lot of that is so influenced by the church and, you know, yes, back to, to your point of, of what, you know, people are advised within the church. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of sort of bad advice going on and, and false information um, for people looking for answers. I always joke that, um, you know, for me as a Jew, being raised in a synagogue, Reformed Judaism, uh, I really wasn't screwed up around sex and homosexuality with the religion because everything was said in Hebrew and I couldn't understand a word they were saying anyways. So I was sort of – I escaped all that, but um, uh-huh. not necessarily really, but – so can you talk about um, – and before we go on, I want to make sure everyone knows what ASECT is. We keep saying that word. It's American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, which you and I belong to, um, which is a certification mm-hmm. body and a sexual health organization that informs educators, counselors, and therapists on how to work well with um, their clients around sexual issues. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, though, um, because you've written in your book, the difference between what faith is and what your beliefs are? Mm-hmm. Sure. <clears throat> this is a key distinction that Rev Bev makes. Um, she separates the experience of faith, which is a deep and profound belief in something bigger than yourself, mm-hmm. which for Christians is, is their belief in God and Jesus as separate from the beliefs or the dogma of the church itself. And it's key to make that distinction because the faith is is usually what people most hold dear. It's what provides hope in the midst of suffering, inspiration when needed most, motivation to do good, 
community and belonging. And what we're saying is that the faith can be retained even if the beliefs change. And that's an important foundation for our book and what we're saying because we do challenge some of the beliefs of the church. Have you a, had a, Go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. One more piece to that is um is uh Rev Bev prevents a, a four-part model to help Christians use the art of discernment which is is sort of a a, a biblical interpretation concept mm-hmm. and it means that you know helping people consider not only scripture and church tradition but also personal experience and intellect which includes modern science and reason can you do you know can you tell us the four parts because i think people would be interested in that mhm yeah those are the four parts so it it's um scripture um the second one is tr- church tradition the third one is personal experience and then the fourth one is intellect or reason. Okay, sorry. And I think because you didn't number them, I didn't hear it. So now, thank you. <laughs> that, that makes sense. And and it doesn't hurt to repeat it because it really is, um, you know, this four-part model comes out of John Wesley, mm. who, um, did, you know, he called it the quadrilateral. And so, you know, in, in church history, this four-part model has been used a lot. So it's not something we just came up with. It's mm-hmm. sort of a model that Christians have used for hundreds of years to to find answers to the questions that they have about how to live their life. Thank you. Um you you mentioned sexual scarcity. I love those two words together. Can you explain what that means? Mhm. Sexual scarcity, the way we use it refers to a scarcity of available options for sexual identity and expression. So, you know, we talk about the concept of being boxed in, which means that a lot of messages from the church create a box, and inside the box is where you're supposed to stay. That means heterosexual, cisgender, traditional marriage relationship, no sex outside of marriage, you know, a lot of times no no kinkiness, traditional gender roles, etc., and outside the box is everything else, anything that wouldn't fit into that, you know, those acceptable mm-hmm. options. And um, many of the people that we interviewed for the book have had the experience, the stifling experience of trying to fit themselves into that box when they didn't fit. And people really try, you know, try to try to make it work, try to um, follow those rules. Mm-hmm. I remember watching this uh, documentary called Trembling Before God, and it's about Orthodox Judaism and homosexuality. It's really a good documentary, even still today. I think it's it's a little older now. But I remember this gay man talking to this Orthodox rabbi and saying – and the rabbi was saying, I'm sorry, you know, sodomy is a, a sin and it's against what we believe. And the And the gay man said – but I don't engage in sodomy. I do. I don't have anal sex. It's never been part of my sexuality. So now what? What does that mean? And the rabbi was mm-hmm. completely perplexed. He didn't even know what to do with that because in his mind, every gay guy engaged in sodomy. And that was his final word. He just didn't know better. Hmm. Really very ignorant. Right, right. And it shows a real limited understanding of what people are actually 
experiencing in their lives and, and what they're actually doing. Very much. Your book talks about the bad news, which you and your co-author group into three symptoms and causes of sex negativity within the church. Could you tell us a little bit about what those are? Sure. Um, we we talk about the, the three symptoms of sexual dissatisfaction and dysfunction, which are prevalent among Christians. Uh, the second one is sexual guilt and shame. And the third one is problematic sexual behaviors. And, you know, so we can go into to those a bit and the causes that we identified as sort of the main culprits for these problems are sexual ignorance, sexual scarcity, and a suspicion of pleasure. Mm. So, you know, for each of these, we, we interviewed people who came out of the church on their experience with issues, including closeted sexual orientation so-called sexual addiction, which I know you, you've spoken a lot about, mm-hmm. um, shame about masturbation, inability to orgasm, dysfunctional gender roles, sexual abuse, and shame about a lack of knowledge about sex. That's so helpful. And when you mentioned pleasure, that's so much of not what we talk about in our culture um, in, in terms of at, so even sex education. It's how to and what not to do in performance uh, terms. But when we talk, we, when pleasures needing to be talked about, people stop talking. And I'm so glad you added that in your work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And that's, that's a, a big part. And, you know, we talk about, um, this mind-body dualism, which, you know, is a reference to a concept that came out of the Greek philosopher Plato and his student Aristotle, which was 400 years before Jesus came. You know, they taught about the superiority of the mind and reason over the passions of the body. Mm. And that's more of Rev Bev's area of expertise, and she's studied the impact of those philosophies on Christian dogma. Mm through the years in depth, um, but I can speak to it in summary. Um, you know, basically that philosophy was popular at the time that Jesus came and his followers, most notably St. Augustine, incorporated it as a central tenet to Christian doctrine, believing all passion is bad because it thwarts reason and the body is a necessary evil because it houses the soul and intellect the St. Augustine and the early church fathers believed that the best way to be close to God was to denounce and deny the body as much as possible. Mm. That's how the doctrine of priest celibacy and the Virgin Mary came about. So in modern times, the conservative church maintains this bias against the body and pleasure. You know, we've come a long way from, from St. Augustine and all that, but the church still has rooted within it this bias against the body and pleasure. Mm. You know, and that, and that's why I have to coach the, the clients, you know, the Christian men and women on how to get good and it's okay to experience pleasure, which is a real, you know, there's a lot of inhibition around that for, for people. Did you know that recently the World Health Organization removed the, the word pleasure from its sexual health, um, conversation? Wow. I did not know that. I know. 
impetus for that? I don't know. I don't remember. I learned it from Doug Brown Harvey, and it may be coming from outside the organization because things are getting so conservative, but it shocked me that it was in and then it was removed. So here we, mm-hmm. you know, there's this like, even on Facebook, I don't know if you promote or do any uh, advertising on Facebook, but anytime we try to pay for any advertising, if it's sexual health related, um, it gets scrutinized to the point where most of my stuff and other sex therapists get rejected. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's not like we're talking about anything that's other than, um, you know, sexual health. We're not talking about uh, things that are uh, controversial. Have you had those issues? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I've certainly, yes, I've seen those issues. And that, I mean, that's further evidence for how prevalent this influence is, which is ages old, this, okay. you know, this prejudice against the body. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I like to, to sort of reduce some of the shame of that. I like to talk with people about how the body was created for pleasure and that resonates with Christians, too, because, you know, if, if God created our bodies and, you know, like there's 8,000 nerve endings on the clitoris and, the, you know, the only purpose of the clitoris is is pleasure. Mm-hmm. So why would it's sort of like, why would God create our bodies to be able to experience so much pleasure if he didn't want us to? I love that. That's so important. I'm going to highlight that when we promote this podcast because that's so, that's such a great thing to say. Can you, mm-hmm. so many of my listeners, you know, um, are also, you know, LGBTQ and the parents of, and how do you think very religious parents can cope better when their kids come out to them LGBTQ? Mm. That's such a tough question. And, you know, we do talk about that in depth in the book uh-huh. um, because there are, there's basically eight we call clobber passages in the Bible that people use or have used to say that being gay is wrong. And, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to talk about it when someone's going to want to use those scriptures, but I'd say check out that chapter in our book mm-hmm. and see what you think. You know, um, Rev Bev, I mean, she's a scholar of the Bible, and she has all the, you know, the history about it, and she goes into interpretation of those scriptures and why she believes that it doesn't support, you know, heterosexual only, that, you know, that it's supportive of all kinds of LGBT orientations. Um, So so that's important. And then, of course, the message of, of love and acceptance from Jesus himself in the sense that he did reach out to people on the margins. Um, you know, that was sort of his thing. And he was accepting of, you know, all, all different types of people, which we believe indicates he would be accepting of LGBT, you know, people and communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, um, a lot of, even outside just sexual practices, a lot of people say, I've heard them say this to me, uh, yeah, Jesus would love that you and accept you, but he wouldn't want you to act on them. Have you, you know, how do you respond to that? Yes. Yes. Um, that, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, I guess it, it, I feel like it keeps going back to the, the Bible passages. That's what always what I run into when I talk to people about it, because at the end of the day, they're like, well, the Bible says it's wrong. And 
unless you can get around that point, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Um, but if someone's able to get on board with the fact that, well, wait a minute, maybe these scriptures don't quite mean that it's wrong, they have these other interpretations that were more relevant for the time, um, then I would say that Jesus and, and God want us to be whole. They want us to be healthy. They want us to be fulfilled. And I, I don't see how telling someone that you, you know, you have to deny yourself and your true nature um, in order to be a Christian, to me, that doesn't fit in with the other things that you read in the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, like you kind of have to take the Bible and especially Jesus, because that's who Christ, that's, you know, the person that Christians are following. You have to look at his words and his example as a whole and what he would want for someone. And, you know, I mean, we know the suicide rates for LGBT community and all the, you know, mental health impacts of, of having to hide your identity. And, and that to me just does not seem like something that God would want. I really appreciate you saying this because when I uh, talk with people, well, my sister-in-law has always said she's, she's a very Christian woman, very progressive. And she says, we wouldn't use the medical books in the fifties to do surgeries today. We've learned so much. Mm-hmm. And that was a book that was great at the time. That's what we knew, but we know more. Why would we use, uh, and be strict about the Bible? The Bible can be, uh, looked at and, and as a tool, but not in, the rigid terms it was it was uh, written in at the time it was written. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does exactly. And on that point, the term homosexuality wasn't even coined until the 1800s. Yeah. So when all you know when when all this this was written and now the words in in those Bible passages are translated to say homosexuality, it's like well they weren't really talking about that because that concept didn't exist at the time. Right. So once you start to realize that and how much room for interpretation there is, that's where it's, you know, going back to that four-part discernment model, helping people really question some of the things that they may have been told by their church and, and you know, do a little more research for themselves and compare what they're seeing. You know, modern science says it's it's natural to some people are born gay and you know, and and take a look and compare those things rather than just believe with blind faith what, you know, what you hear. Yes. Church. Well, let me ask you, what would you say is what you want most uh, from, to, for Christians or former Christians to gain from reading your book? Sure. I, I would want Christians, former Christians, anyone to know that sexual wholeness and vibrancy is available for everyone, whether you're a conservative Christian, you're a progressive Christian, you're an atheist, you're a former Christian, and everyone in between, um, you know, and and on top of that, a, a sex-positive approach within Christianity is possible. Have you gotten pushback from your book, from people who are very religious? We have not gotten as much pushback as we thought we were going to. Mm. And which is, which is interesting. And, you know, we, we've been pretty clear that the audience for our book is people who are already seeking answers rather than people who are kind of firmly rooted within their conservative beliefs and they don't really want to consider um, things outside of that. Um, and yes, I mean, the, 
the the beliefs and the things that we promote in the book are would be considered radical for that for those real conservative communities. So I think because of how we promoted it and everything, I don't think it really hit the radar for those um, those communities. If if it did, I would expect some backlash. Um, but yeah, because we you know we promote acceptance of all sexual sexual and gender orientation, mm-hmm. alternatives to monogamy, the ability to question and negotiate gender roles, and comprehensive sexual education for children and teens, which are all things that tend to be pretty, you know, controversial. I would say that also. That's great. I would also say that you're probably not getting much backlash because you're not. You know, this is such a, a well spoke. You're well spoken about all this, and you're not bashing the religion. You're really coming out and just sort of wanting to add to the conversation, not take away or bash. I, that's how it sounds to me. Your book and this interview. Well, thank you. I, I'm glad to hear that. That is definitely the tone that we have wanted to have mm-hmm. um, because. You know, uh, uh, Beverly is a reverend, and she holds her faith very dear. And and we're not at all anti-religion or anti-faith. Yes, um, there's a lot of of wonderful things that come along with being a Christian. So I'm glad that that comes across. You know, we're not trying to tear things down, but we are trying to address the very real issue of all of these problems that people are having from the sex negative beliefs that are coming out of the church, which we think are separate from the message that Jesus actually would have intended. Yes, I love it. We're going to be wrapping up. What, is there any last minute things you want to say and also tell them people how to get a hold of your book and how to get a hold of you? Sure. Um, so I would say, yeah, check out the book. You can find it on Amazon. Just search for the title. And, you know, there, there's some some cool tools and resources in there. Um, there's a, a sexual belief chart where it kind of it lists. It's eight pages long, so it's pretty extensive, and it lists a lot of the the negative sexual beliefs that people will have, and then has a sex positive therapist response and a sex positive pastor response, which I think is is helpful for people. Um, and then one last thing, we have some. Uh, sex positive Christian meditations in the book that are written and read by Rev Bev. Um, So I hope, you know, I hope people can check it out and find it helpful. And um, yeah, thank you for, thank you for having me on to talk about this important topic. Absolutely. And let's mention your book one more time. It'll also be a link on our website, uh, Advancing Sexual Health for the Christian Client, Data and Dogma by um, Rachel Keller and Beverly Dale. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being on this podcast with me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time.